Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The tug of war. Houthi rebels from Yemen attack ships in the Red Sea, adding instability at an already volatile time. A human rights worker based in Beirut tells us what she fears may happen next. Name dropping. We'll hear from a black Torontonian who's applauding the city's decision to rename its downtown square, but believes it would have been more thorough to also rename a thoroughfare. Energy boosts. Albertans are preparing for an influx of natural gas power in 2024. And one expert tells us that's not just good for the grid, it'll be great for wallets too. Spinning a yarn as Hanukkah comes to a close will bring you a reading of a story called A Parakeet Named Dreidel by Josh Dolgan, also known as So Called, also known as the artist behind the theme that you are hearing behind us. I'll be home for Christmas. A Kentucky family is shocked to find an owl in their Christmas tree, which reminded us of the time New Yorkers were needling authorities about the balding Rockefeller Center tree until a tiny owl was discovered in its branches. And gag gift. A Montreal man says a tree planted in front of his home by the city drops seeds with a stink so powerful that cleaning them up actually makes him queasy. As it happens, the Friday edition, Radio That Wonders, who cut the trees? It is a tightrope walk containing the conflict in Gaza, keeping the fighting from spreading into surrounding regions. And right now, the Houthi rebel group are jumping up and down on that rope. The Houthis are the sworn enemies of the Yemeni government and its ally, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Now they've seized one ship and its crew of 25 and taken credit for firing missiles on several others in the Red Sea. And they say they'll keep attacking ships on a key shipping route as long as Israel's military is fighting in Gaza. The Houthis proudly take credit for their attacks, including three in recent days. They've even posted video of their raid on one ship on social media. This week, Human Rights Watch issued a statement condemning the attacks. Nico Jafarnia is a researcher on Yemen with the organization. We reached her in Beirut. Nico, Houthi leaders, as you know, say they're doing this for Palestinians. Why do you think they're doing this? Yeah, you know, I think it's really hard to assess the motivations of any group or any political leaders. Um, I think there's multiple motivations at play. Um, In reality, what they're doing is also going through negotiations at the moment with Saudi for a peace deal and a ceasefire in Yemen. And I think there's something to be said for, for just generally the Houthis really trying to claim their space as the legitimate government of Yemen as well. Um, And I think this is a real power move within the region to be demonstrating themselves as the leaders of Yemen. They keep calling themselves just the Yemeni Armed Forces and the Yemeni Navy, um, rather than, you know, specifically the Houthi or Ansar Allah, as they refer to Mm -hmm. themselves. Um, you know, Navy, et cetera. So I think, I think there's a lot of things that are that is, be happening behind the, behind yeah. the scenes. Is the message they're ultimately trying to send, is that message of, of power? We, we're we in charge here? It's, it's a really tough thing for me to be able to say that because I'm, I'm unfortunately not, you know, in their heads or and don't have any in, intel on, on what exactly their motivation is. But I do think there's some, I think it would make sense uh, in, at this political moment for Yemen for them to be really demonstrating, you know, their power within the region and within their their own country. What concerns you and your colleagues at Human Rights Watch most about what you're seeing unfold right now? I think what's really deeply awful about what they're doing is is the fact that they are explicitly targeting civilian commercial ships and calling them legitimate targets, which is just absolutely not true. 
and is a war crime. It's a war crime to, to deliberately or recklessly target civilians. And yet even their, with their statements starting on November 19th, I believe, they, they've explicitly said that they will go after any ship with links to Israel, including Israeli-owned ships or ships that are owned by Israeli companies um, or individuals. And, and that is just not how the laws of war work. Um, and even beyond that, the ships that they are targeting, most of them don't have any links to Israel. None of them are going to Israel. And yet they keep claiming publicly that that's exactly what they're doing, which is just false. Um, and I and I really question: Do they actually have that knowledge, or are they just are they just stating this because there's there's just no evidence that they're going off of at least none that they're presenting to the public that would demonstrate that any of these are actually military targets, or that they're they're even Israeli, you know, military ships or even ships linked to the Israeli state to begin with. Maersk, the shipping company, just today, as you may have heard, paused all of its container shipments moving through the Red Sea. One of its ships was hit there by an attack recently. Just tell us about this particular pathway through the Red Sea. How critical is it for people living in the region that shipments move as they should? Yeah, I mean, what they're doing is blocking ships from entering the Bab al-Mandab, which is a strait that, you know, is between Djibouti, Eritrea and Yemen. And it's incredibly critical for shipping, uh, both to, you know, it, can, it connects uh, Saudi and Sudan and Egypt, Jordan, Israel, but and Palestine, uh, to be clear. And then beyond that, it also a lot of ships that are coming from Asia, they use that strait to actually go toward Europe and other areas, because otherwise, if they are coming from further east, they would they would literally need to go all the way around the Cape of Good Hope at the bottom of Africa. Um, in order to go reach these destinations. And some of the destinations, you know, including Sudan, uh, Eritrea, et cetera, wouldn't be able to be reached, period, um, if not for this, and Jordan, if not for this strait. And so it's it's incredibly critical for shipping. Um, and again, none of the ships that we saw were actually going to Israel. And so I think that's that's pretty key to to point out. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was speaking to reporters this week and said, quote, while the Houthis are pulling the trigger, so to speak, they're being handed the gun by Iran, end quote. What do you make of that statement and Iran's role here? I think there's no doubt, and, and Iran is quite you know, forward about the fact that they do support the Houthis. I think what's very unclear at this point in time is what exactly that support looks like and what that, how that relates to these ship attacks. There's, we have no evidence um, of the fact that Iran is behind this. That's not to say that it's not true. It's just that we don't know. And I don't know what you know, US, U.S. national security might be aware of that we're not. But they also haven't presented anything to really make that link clear. Um, in the past, Iran has shipped, you know, massive shipments of weapons over a series of years to the Houthis, including missiles, similar to the types of ones that, you know, have been, you know, possibly similar to the types that have been fired at these ships. But it's, it's, we have no evidence of the, you know, the exact missiles that were fired, whether they were actually the ones that Iran had given. Um, It's unclear whether they had been going under direction of Iran. Iran has stated that they had nothing to do with it. I mean, it's just unclear. Like, we don't we don't personally have any information. Are you and your colleagues concerned about an escalation of violence in the region? I mean, I think what we've seen in this conflict, more broadly speaking, is a complete and utter disregard for international humanitarian law, period. And I think in the same way that state should be pushing the Houthis to apply by inter- international humanitarian law and specifically be targeting military objects rather than civilian objects, you know, states should be pushing Israel and other parties in this conflict to be doing so as well and and really apply, you know, parallel pressures and, and show consistent values for the international legal system rather than just picking and choosing which groups they're going to try to push to, to be compliant. So um, I, I really think that that's what all, all international actors need to be doing at the moment. Niku, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Niku Jafarnia is a researcher on Yemen with Human Rights Watch. We reached her in Beirut.
In Alberta, the people are about to be given all kinds of new power. After months of headlines and government ad campaigns highlighting high energy prices and the risks of blackouts, the province is preparing for an influx of power in 2024. Thanks to a handful of natural gas projects, Albertans will soon see a boost in supply and a drop in prices. But there's more to be done to ensure the province's long-term needs are met. Blake Schaefer is an associate professor in the Department of Economics in the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and a former energy trader. We reached him in Calgary. Blake, how much are Albertans going to be saving once these new projects get going? So it's a pretty big impact. It depends on what type of plan you're on here. So in Alberta, it's sort of like mortgages. You can choose a fixed rate or a floating rate. And so for the people who are on floating rate, they've been paying as much as 32 cents per kilowatt hour. And with this fall in prices, we're going to be back down around 10 cents, which is the norm. So for these folks, it could be as much as about $150 in some months that they're saving. Uh, For the full year, it's probably going to be an average of about $75 a month. So we're talking close to $1,000 for the year. So a a big savings. And I would say that most of the people who are still on the floating rate, many of them are folks with low credit scores. So they simply couldn't get access to the fixed plan. So it's really important for these people. Yeah, wherever you are, those numbers would be staggering. Exactly. It's a big part of the budget. Last month, Premier Danielle Smith was raising alarms about power issues in her province. Let's play that clip for you and our listeners. We nearly had our our grid fail seven times last winter. We had a level three alert. Three times over the summer, we had a level three alert. These used to be very rare. We now had eight within about a 12 to 18 month period. That is a sign that the grid is under stress. So these new, new projects, are they going to help in terms of the overall supply? Absolutely. Because we have had a fall off in our supply. We've had retirements come on uh, over the past few years. Uh, even though we've had this massive growth in renewables in our province, obviously they're not there all the time. So this 2,700 megawatts of new natural gas, which is about a quarter of the existing system we have now coming on in one year, that's really going to help mitigate those Uh, grid emergencies in those periods of potential supply shortfalls. The projects are also coming, though, at a time, as you well know, when Canada is looking to transition to cleaner energy sources. So what effect do you think that these projects could have on that transition? Sure. I guess I'd point out one of them, actually the largest Mm -hmm. one by far, is is the conversion of our last coal plants here in Alberta. Uh, So in that sense, there's a saving because we're we're eliminating uh, the higher emitting coal. The other ones, yeah, we're adding gas. The reality is we do need these firm, dispatchable types of power generation for the near term. Over the longer haul, though, what we're seeing is more wind and solar provide a higher share of the energy to our province. And those natural gas plants are still going to be needed for their capacity. They'll still be needed some hours of the year, but they're going to be used more sparingly. They're going to be used less often. And so we have to find a a market that works such that the economics warrant these power plants to stay on. We had Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo on the show last week speaking about the government's plan to cap gas emissions by more than a third through through cap and trade. Obviously, the federal government has a lot of goals and they say they're committed to reaching those goals, meeting its, its requirements and promises. But do you think it's possible that Alberta can meet them? Good, very good question. And, you know, there's pitched battles around some of those newer regulations. And the, mm-hmm. the most applicable one here is those clean electricity regulations. They'll allow newer plants to run out for 20 years. Those three big plants we've just been talking about coming online here in Alberta this next year, that means they can run till 2044 without any emissions abatement if they so choose. But But there is a prescriptive nature about those regulations in terms of h- how frequently power plants can run uh, rules around their lifespan. I, I do think the feds need to make the the currently proposed regulations as they're revising them right now, incorporate some flexibility into them to allow for a range of possibilities. Uh, I remain a techno-optimist. I think technology costs are falling so quickly. My hope is that it's moot and clean technology usurps <laughs> this challenge and gets in front of it. Um, but we want flexibility in the case that that doesn't happen. 
And we always, you have to remember, we always have carbon pricing providing that strong incentive to shift away from emitting sources of power to cleaner ones. But the friction between, and a friction might be uh, an understatement, between Danielle Smith, Premier Danielle Smith, and the federal government, how do you think that will affect your province? Yeah, uh, from my point of view, and I, I say this as someone that provides policy advice to multiple levels of government, always at the bureaucratic level, never at the political I see conversations, constructive conversations happening between the people who are really sitting down to, to advise the politicians on, on policy making, you know, effectively the bureaucrats. There's constructive federal, provincial conversations going on there. It's simply that those aren't the ones that hit the news. Well, it's the premier, so of course it's going to make news. It's at the highest level. Absolutely. It's at the highest level. It's the most inflammatory rhetoric um, on all sides, in effect, but especially coming from our premier. And so what I find is when that amps up, it pushes back on the work that's happening at the more constructive uh, worker level because there's, there's less desire to come to solutions because sides dig in mm-hmm. because they're feeling that p- political pressure from above. And that to me is really disappointing as someone who is really agnostic over the politics and just wants good policy being made. And so there are solutions for Alberta here. No doubt there's challenges huge challenges to transition our electricity system. But there's also massive opportunity when it comes to employment, when it comes to federal transfers available to Alberta to to build this new system that would be in alignment with what the feds want to see. And and to be fair, it's not far off from what Alberta states it wants to see, which is net zero 2050. So I, I, I still hold out hope that there's cooperation uh, ahead and a solution to be had. I, I think the political rhetoric just simply does damage to that, though. Blake, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Blake Schaefer is an associate professor in the Department of Economics and School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and a former energy trader. He's in Calgary. When Dino Delizzi opens the front door of his Montreal home and takes a deep breath, he doesn't always feel refreshed. And he doesn't take those deep breaths through his nose because of the putrid stench outside his place. It's not from the neighbor's garbage or from a nearby KFC. It's the stink of his ginkgo tree. The tree has been a source of frustration for Mr. Delizzi for years, and he wants local officials to do something about it. We reached him at his home in the borough of San Leonard in Montreal. Do you know, I, I think you're looking at your ginkgo tree right now. It's hard to miss, right? I've seen some pictures, but how do you feel when you look at it now? Oh, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm at a stage now where I'm just fed up. It's just, uh, I just, I don't know what to do anymore. So that's why we went to, we reached out to CBC because nothing was getting done. There was no positive replies from the city. And their bottom line was anytime I discussed it with them or texted them, it was always, the city will never cut down a healthy tree. Mm. Well, let's so, go back 15 years ago when it was originally planted. How did you okay. feel about it at that time? Because I've seen them in full, you know, in their full glory, and they're quite beautiful to look at. What did you think of it yes, at first? Yes, they are. Well, when, uh, when they planted it, they told me it was a ginkgo tree, so I, I don't know anything about trees, but they told me there's many of them planted in St. Leonard, and it has a nice leaf, and it'll be a nice tree. I said, okay, great. So that was okay for the first few years, but then when the fruits started popping up, then it became a problem. So I contacted the city and they said, oh, well, you shouldn't have very many fruits. And uh, they're giving me all this BS. And they sent me guys to trim branches because they said, by trimming the branches, you'll have a lot less fruit next year. But the problem was that every year I keep getting more and more and more and more fruits. And this year was the most I've ever had. Well, why would the fruit be a problem? What, what, what issues are coming up because of them? Well, the fruits, they <laughs> fall on my lawn. They rot, and they go into my grass and damage my grass. They're all over the sidewalk. They're all over the street. Uh, The berries are toxic, so they're dangerous for dogs. So I kind of, all my neighbors that I know that have dogs, I've warned them all. Uh, People are constantly crossing the street because who wants to walk in squashed berries that stink? The, the, The smell is unbelievable. It smells like 
if you mix up vomit and rotten fruits. Oh God. Yeah, it's 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 very very bad. I mean, it's when I cut my lawn in say August, I do everything just to barely you you're gagging because the smell is so strong. Oh. And how many months every year is this an issue? Well, they start. They don't uh, come out early. They come out maybe around August. Oh, and the heat and then, too. That can help. Yeah, no, and then they start. Uh, end of August, September, they start to drop. So I have literally thousands on my lawn, and every day I go out and rake them. So the city told me that if I put them on the sidewalk, they would be willing to pick them up. Have they? Well, in the last five years, they've done it twice. Otherwise, so they just sit there till they they just sit there. They just sit there. People go over them with their cars. People walk on them, and you know that's just it. Because the problem is, most of them fall on my lawn. But the city is not allowed to send workers to work on my lawn. They're only allowed to pick up stuff that's on the sidewalk or in the street. I'm left raking them every day. But the city planted it on your lawn. Is that is that does the yeah, tree it, belong to you officially, or is it a city tree? No, no, it's a city tree. But like I said, they planted it in there instead of planting a male like they usually do. They gave me a female, and that's important because the male trees don't don't have this problem. So that's right. The male trees don't have berries. How much has it cost you? Do you think to to try to deal with this over the years? Well, over the past couple of years, it's cost almost $2,000 to repair a, my lawn every year. That's out of your pocket. What do you want them to do? That you want them to remove this existing tree and plant a new one? Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. I can, yeah, I can't keep going like this. It's this tree is getting so big, It's and my son, who knows a lot about trees, he said these trees go grow about a thousand years, and they'll only get bigger and produce yeah. more berries every year. City Councilor Dominic Perry uh, referenced the bylaw saying, quote, only trees infected by pests, trees deemed dangerous by a professional, and trees with at least 50% of dead branches are cut down if pruning can't save this tree, the tree, rather, end quote. You've heard that line before, I'm sure. How much longer can you go on? I mean, are you going to pick up a chainsaw yourself? Well, no, because they already warned me. It's a $15,000 fine if I damage the tree or cut it down. And there's also a possibility of jail time. Have you received any response since the CBC reporting? No, no. Well, that came out this morning. Mm. So, no, no response as of yet. Something needs to be done because I cannot, at my age, rake fruits off my lawn every day. It doesn't make sense. I'm not a farmer. If I was a farmer, if I wanted to be a farmer, I would have bought a farm. But this is ridiculous now. Well, I hope you get some answers soon, Dino. I appreciate your time. Okay. I hope so, too, because it's really, uh, I don't know what to do anymore. Well, I guess the next step after CBC, if nothing works, I will have to get a lawyer. So, Yeah, that's your plan next, the next steps. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Dino, thank you. Okay, no problem. My pleasure. That was Dino Delisi in Montreal. His San Leonard Borough told our CBC colleague Leah Hendry that it's working with Montreal's Park Service to see if they can reduce the odor. It's small potatoes compared to the influx of mail that Santa receives at this time of year. But without fail, every December, our inbox is flooded with messages from listeners who are all anxious to know one thing. When will the shepherd air? As tradition dictates, our annual broadcast of Fireside Al Maitland's reading of the classic short story by Frederick Forsyth will air on the last show before Christmas. And this year, that means the shepherd will air on, give you a second to grab your calendar, Friday, December 22nd. That is next Friday. Same bat time, same bat channel. We should also mention that in addition to the messages about when The Shepherd is airing this year, many of you wrote to us with another concern. Like Terry David, who wrote, quote, Guess what? There's a new movie version of The Shepherd coming to a TV set near you. And yes, the guy who plays Johnny Cavanaugh is John Travolta. Huh? WTF? Thanks, but I'll stick with the Alan Maitland reading. Unquote. We get it, Terry. We we were kind of confused about it, too, and maybe a little 
cranky. But we weren't as upset as listener Dagmar Koenig, who wrote, quote, Dear Neil and Chris, I was outraged to hear your report about Disney's Shepherd. Leave it to Disney to spoil or completely destroy brilliant pieces of writing. And I'm even disgusted to hear their shameless claim about it being the first time this story is aired publicly. Again, leave it to Disney to neglect research before making a claim. Rest assured, your reading will remain unsurpassed in its charm and mysterious beauty, unquote. High praise. Thank you, Dagmar. And know that you can also rest assured because we tracked down Ian Softly, the director and writer of that new Disney adaptation, to set the record straight. Here's a clip from our conversation. We have a very long history with and a very deep love of The Shepherd around here at As It Happens. So when we watched the trailer for your film and saw the words, a timeless holiday classic brought to life for the first time, flash across the screen, there were some feelings. There were some discussions, so I want to give you an opportunity. Do you want to? Do you want to make any amendments or put an asterisk beside that? Yeah, it's brought to life for the first time on the screen. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I think the justification is is that it was advertised on the screen. It was part of a trailer. So okay, uh, all right. I've mentioned the um, I've mentioned the the history of the project in particular with with you guys um, uh, pretty regularly in the in in the interviews. Okay. Um, and, and and people do mention it when they when they actually go into into in in the coverage. That's good to hear. That's good to hear for our listeners as well as us. So thank you for that. We'll let you know you can be on the good list again for Santa Claus, I guess, at this time of year. But so where how did you first come across it? Had you had you heard our version? No, I I hadn't heard your version. I came across it sort of via John Travolta. Mm-hmm. Um who you so may So he's know an as it happens listener. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> I think he told me about it, actually, um, and I think he heard the uh, and, and really enjoyed the, uh, the the Chris the Christmas Eve broadcasts over the years. I think he, he really? said he, he with his family. Um, so it was really by John. Um, we were told by his agents that um, uh, you know we should look at this story, um, and that John would help in any way that he could to get it made as a um, as, as a movie or a TV film. Um, and so very early on in the process, I met John and I found out that he had optioned the story, I think, 40 years ago himself with a view to playing the young pilot. Uh, of course, as the years went by, that didn't become uh, a possibility uh, and he let the option go. But he always uh, had this desire to see it on, on the screen in some form. Yes, you you heard that right. That was Ian Softley, director and writer of Disney's new film adaptation of The Shepherd, revealing that John Travolta is a fan of our annual broadcast. You can hear our full feature-length conversation with Mr. Softley after Fireside Owl Maitland's reading on Friday, December 22nd. Let me just check our studio chocolate (laughs) advent calendar. Somebody ate a couple days ahead. That's only seven more sleeps away, and it will be here faster than you can say. Johnny Kavanaugh. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Love it or hate it, Young and Dundas Square is a major landmark in downtown Toronto, the kind of place you use to get your bearings. And for years, thousands of Torontonians have been arguing they would prefer to situate themselves in a different way, a way that doesn't invoke a Scottish politician who never even set foot in the city. Henry Dundas was active in government from the late 1770s to the early 1800s and is best known today for introducing a motion in British Parliament to stall the abolition of slavery. Soon, visitors to Young and Dundas Square, at least, won't be reminded of him anymore. Beginning in 2024, they'll be able to say, meet me in Sankofa Square. Lanrick Bennett is a Toronto resident who's been a vocal proponent of the renaming. We reached him in Toronto. Lanrick, have you have you started thinking about what it might feel like to stand in Sankofa Square for the first time next year? 
Yeah, it's um, it's a bit humbling just knowing that we've made some progress. Yeah, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a good feeling. And let's let's be honest that the name change right now. This is just the beginning. the The conversation of how we transform uh, the name of Henry Dundas has not it has not concluded. This this continues going forward. So it's it's a step in the right direction, I feel. Yeah, this, the square has been renamed, but Dundas yes. Street in Toronto remains Dundas Street. That's right. And we should let our listeners know where Sankofa comes from, what it means. The concept originates in Ghana, and it refers to the act of reflecting on and reclaiming teachings from the past, which enables us to move forward together. That was in the city's motion. That's what, right. What What about that sentiment speaks to you and, and makes you feel that that was the right choice? I feel very much that we have to look at the past. We have to um, make sure that we aren't erasing things, but we need to learn from things that had happened and and be able to um, to be able to go forward and to be able to recognize where harm was done and uh, to be able to to give to give notice and understanding that uh, we can as a community, as a city, uh, move ourselves beyond what was uh, placed in front of us beforehand. Some some have been pointing out online um, since the decision came out that the Akan people in, in Ghana, with whom this concept originates, were themselves involved in the transatlantic slave trade. H- had you heard that? Does that give you pause at all? It doesn't so much give me pause. It, it does give me a clear understanding of those that would try and conflate um, a a machine of of creating slavery as a business uh, and and to try and conflate that to what has just been brought forward, I think is it's not even that it's two separate things. it's there is no quantifiable, uh, uh, similarity uh, between that. On the issue of of the full street, you know, the, the fight that you that you still have uh, in play mm-hmm. right now, uh, the city has said it it opted not to proceed partly because of the cost of a complete renaming. Renaming it had gone from eight point six million dollars to twelve point seven million this fall. So is there is there a point where you think it, the cost would be too high? That that is interesting, and and I've been asked that before, mm-hmm. and and understand that in our city there's limited funding to do all of the things that we think are a priority. But I, I've got to, I've really got to say that on a on a day that also had uh, the Ontario Human Rights uh, uh, Council put forth a damning report uh, mm-hmm. towards uh, the Toronto Police. Um, it's it's quite evident that racism still exists in our um, in our institutions. So yes, there's a price tag on everything that we do, and fighting that battle against uh, against racism in our city, I don't think that that deserves to be um, at the bottom of the barrel. I think that that needs to be a priority, and we need to invest in uh, in creating a a better, safer, and more just society that allows for Black voices and Black people to feel uh, that they are on equal footing with everyone else. How does renaming the square, do you think, contribute to racial justice and, and meaningful change? Because you know that there are critics who will say that this is this feels to them, at least, performative. You know, I... I've been advocating not just on this, but many factors living in this city. And I put a lot of strength in my kids. I've got a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old right now. And they have opinions. Yeah. They have opinions. <laughs> they have opinions. And But the, the, the wonderful thing is that they're not afraid to voice those yeah. opinions. And talking to both of them about the renaming, about why this is so important. Uh, they've never once looked at me. And and if you, you have kids, you, you, you know that kind of look of like, oh my gosh, he's talking about <laughs> this thing again. That hasn't come up. If nothing else, they want to know more. They want to know what are the adults in the room doing to make it better for them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that they see 
the work that not just myself, I mean, we've got tens of thousands of people, uh, you know, countless volunteers, experts coming forward. We've got even a few politicians that have, you know, decided to flex their political will mm -hmm. and city staff that have really uh, put their all into uh, into crafting something that that truly will matter. There are more renamings to come, uh, both Dundas subway stations as well as the Jane Dundas Public Library. Do you have some names on a wish list for those? No names on a wish list, but um, I'm I'm eager. Uh, I'm sure as many to to find out what uh, what those names will be. Um, I want the conversation to continue. I want people to feel engaged. We don't have enough politicians that are flexing that political will to be amplifiers, to be our um, allies. And I live in a part of the city that doesn't have one of those. So it was, it, it just felt right to be able to, you know, uh, make some noise. Will it bother you? You know, people have their habits, right? Regardless of how they feel or whether they know about the history of that, that name and the person behind it if they continue to call it Young Dundas Square, if they, you know, if you hear people over the next years, few years, how will that feel? I think I'm going to feel okay that my kids are not going to call it that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lenrick, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lanrick Bennett is a Toronto resident who's advocated for Dundas Street and other landmarks named for Henry Dundas to be renamed. We reached him in Toronto. Recently, a Kentucky family did what a lot of people do at this time of year. They loaded up the family van and they went out to cut down the perfect Christmas tree. And for four days, that perfect Christmas tree stood fully decorated in their living room. Their three dogs slept under it. The family watched TV next to it and no one noticed anything odd. Until the man they had hired to vacuum their home sent the family a photo of a tiny owl perched on a branch. Unbeknownst to the family and the dogs, that owl had been living in their living room for four days. The owl has now been released into the woods and is totally fine, although the three dogs should be demoted. But that story reminds us of another Christmas tree, one that was decidedly less perfect. It was patchy and balding and set up in New York's Rockefeller Square. One person said the 75-foot-tall Norway spruce was a metaphor for 2020. Except inside that metaphor for a truly terrible year was a tiny owl. From our archives, here's Ravensbeard Wildlife Center owner Ellen Kalish speaking with our former host, Carol Off. I got a phone call out of the blue from someone who um, her husband was working on the tree. I guess they were the transport and team for um, hooking it up to the crane and, and getting it to stand up. And as they were working, you know, unwrapping and, and taking the tree apart, they found this little owl attached to one of the branches. So we thought he was going to be damaged when when we got him. And um, by a sheer Christmas miracle, nothing was broken. Hmm. What yeah. kind? Of, now, now he, I've seen a video or some tape of his journey as this big, huge flatbed truck where this seventy-five <laughs> foot uh, the Norway spruce is being transported. And so, right. my gosh, what what do you think that was like for him to go to to Manhattan the other day? <laughs> I'm sure it was quite a shock, <laughs> um, but we we don't know the whole story, and we never will. Um, you know, as some people have have offered, you know, he could have flown into the tree um, while it was parked overnight. Um, and then maybe gotten entangled um, so he couldn't get out until they opened the tree up. But we have a feeling that he did not fly into the tree 
uh, from New York City mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with all the construction and lights and, you know, um, it, it would not be a place an owl would seek to hide. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Not a Manhattan owl. Now, but we did uh, speak to the woman who actually, the family do- donated it, said that the tree... She said one of the reasons why the tree looked so bad when it was when it was set up was because it had been wrapped up for about a week. So I wonder if that yeah. owl had been trapped in there for that long, the poor thing. It very well very well could have. Yeah. We'll never know. We just know he was dehydrated and hungry. <laughs> so we're now feeding him up and we're gonna release him with a full belly. Uh, and the other thing, people were saying that this 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 tree, when it went up, this it said it was kind of a sad, shaggy tree that was a kind of fitting symbol of 2020. <laughs> but yes. now, do, do, do you think finding this beautiful little creature in the middle of it is even is, is maybe a, a, a nice symbol of something else that might emerge from this horrible year we're in? I agree. I agree. And I think that's what made me share the story on on social media was that it was such a positive, uh, positive story. And, you know, with hope and the new year coming up and, you know, just this, the, the fact that the owl was not damaged beyond repair, it could have gone the other way and we could have, you know, could have had to put him down. So at this, you know, for this to just be such a, a great story from start to finish has just been a gift, I think, to the world. We needed it. <laughs> yes, yes, we did. From our archives, that was the owner of the Ravensbeard Wildlife Center, Ellen Kalish, speaking with Carol in December 2020 about an owl that was found in the Rockefeller Christmas tree. There is finally a plan for exactly how Google will pay for Canadian news. Today, the final regulations for the Online News Act were published by the federal government. Heritage Minister Pascal Saint-Ange and Google have been in tough negotiations for months and announced a $100 million deal two weeks ago as Google was threatening to block Canadian news. Now the government says it finally knows how that money will be doled out. It's a great day for the sustainability of our newsrooms. Uh, We know that uh, there's been a lot of uh, layoffs. More than thousands of journalists have lost their jobs across the country in the past decade. Uh, Having more uh, equitable relationships and uh, commercial relationships between tech giants and our newsroom is an essential part of ensuring the sustainability uh, of our news sector and ensuring that uh, journalism continues to play its role Uh, in democracy. It's also uh, a first of its kind uh, in the world where we have a transparent and and viable legislation um, where smaller news outlets also have a seat at the negotiating table with the tech giants. So this is extremely good for Canadians. Uh, It's good for democracy and I think it's a, a good step for the rest of the world as well. Heritage Minister Pascal Saint-Ange speaking in Ottawa today about the federal government's deal with Google. Paul Deegan is the president of News Media Canada, which represents hundreds of digital and print outlets. He's in Toronto. Paul, are you celebrating today? Is this a win? I I, I think absolutely. Uh, And first of all, just a huge tip of the hat to Pascal Saint-Ange, the Minister of Canadian Heritage. I think she's done a fantastic job in delivering a framework that is durable, but fair, balanced, and equitable, both for publishers and for platforms. So she's she's really done a terrific job, I have to say. Already today, I'm hearing from publishers all around the world who are wanting to emulate what's happening in Canada. So that, this is real, really world-leading legislation and regulation that she's brought in. Earlier this year, the federal government was estimating that Google's the compensation from Google could, could come to about $172 million. So do you think that... that- a hundred million now overall is going to be enough. So, so, so I, I think if you look at the uh, you know some of the estimates around the world uh, uh, from different things, a lot of that is based on cash and non-cash consideration. This is an all-cash deal, so I think if you look at it mm-hmm. on that basis, a hundred million 
is a very, very good number from one company. I know you've been waiting to see how the regulations look in the end, but from what you've seen so far, how is this going to work? What are the news organizations you represent? What are they going to have to do and prove to get their share? So, so they're going to have to go through, uh, and Google's going to have this open call process where news organizations uh, come forward. And I think that should be relatively straightforward. The The legislation is very clear as to, you know, what is a legitimate news organization. And so they'll come forward and then we will uh, work with the Canadian Association of Broadcasters and the CBC and ensure that monies are distributed fair, fairly and equitably. And it's based on how many journalists a news organization it, it, employs, correct? C- correct. It's, it's based on headcount. And so what you're really seeing with that is that the smallest news organizations in the country are really going to benefit. Mm-hmm. In the initial version of the legislation, the sort of two-person family-owned businesses, sort of the you know mom and pops as they're called, they weren't eligible under the legislation. We got an amendment uh, before the House of Commons Heritage Committee, which allows them to be eligible. So folks like Sarah Holmes and her husband, Derek, who run the Gabriola Sounder on Gabriola Island in British Columbia, they're eligible under this and they will receive you know a significant payment from this, uh, from Google, for the value of the content that they produce. And we, we think that's terrific news. Two-thirds of the money, just to let our listeners know, is going to go to print and digital media. Yes. CBC Radio Canada's share is going to be capped at $7 million. That's despite the fact that the, the CBC Radio Canada employs the the highest number of journalists, uh, right. about a third in the country. Obviously, you represent print and digital media outlets, as we've said, and smaller outlets as well. But is that something you advocated for, that kind of a cap? So, so, so we think you know where the minister has landed is fair. I think you know she's taken into account that the uh, the public funding for the CBC is about one point two billion dollars a year. Uh, at the same time, you know she's made sure that the CBC is receiving uh, some money from this, and I think that's an important signal, you know, to the CBC journalists. You know, it's recognizing the value of the content that your journalists produce. And it's also an important signal to public broadcasters around the world that their content is valued. And, uh, you know, that I think is, uh, you know, it's a thorny issue, but I think she's landed it in the right place. We should mention that Google sent a statement to our Radio Canada colleagues. And in that statement, they say they still believe C-18 is fundamentally flawed legislation, but say that they're pleased the government has acknowledged their concerns and, quote, created a framework for a viable path to exemption in the final regulations, end quote. Ultimately, as you've said, this is cause for celebration for you and and those you represent. But are you concerned about about the future? Do you think it could have gone further? Uh, You know, we we think it's landed in a good spot. And I have to say, you know, we've worked with Google throughout this process. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, every everyone has to represent their own interests, uh, but they've been very professional. They've been very constructive. And, uh, you know, it's gotten to a place where they can live with it and we can live with it. And really what we would say now to Meta is follow Google's lead. Without news, they're basically devolving into, you know, just too, way too much misinformation and disinformation. And you need high quality fact-based fact check news content to, you know, make sure that meta users are getting real news rather than fake news. People are hungry for that. That we can certainly be sure of. We know that. But on the issue of Facebook and meta, uh, Pascal Sanange said in in her news conference today that, that they should be negotiating but that they're not, that it takes two to negotiate, that, that Meta's yep. not uh, at the table. So what's your feeling? You know, are you optimistic that this deal will, will pave the way for uh, a conversation and ultimately a deal with Meta? Honestly, I don't know. But, I, you know, the one thing I would say is, uh, you know, we've worked very well with Google. The minister has as well. And so there's no reason why. Uh, you know, either the minister or publishers, you know, won't work well with Meta. So, but we need them to come to the table. What are the the folks you represent? The outlets you represent have have they reacted and responded to to this deal? What are they telling you? 
So we, we just actually had a, uh, a board meeting uh, a, a few minutes ago, and you know the reaction around the table was very positive. Uh, they certainly commend the minister in terms of you know her ability to land this. This was a sticky, uh, stinky file that she uh, <laughs> she picked up, and uh, and she, look, she landed it very, very well. So. Uh, you know, I, I think publishers are excited about this. And obviously, you know, we want to make sure that the money flows quickly. We, you know, don't want sort of, you know, bureaucratic delays and things like that, because the industry is is in a, a tough spot. And this money will make a very meaningful difference. Thanks for this, Paul. Thanks so much, Neil. A pleasure being with you on As It Happens. Paul Deegan is the president of News Media Canada. He's in Toronto. It's been more than two months since the October 7th attacks, and Israeli survivors are still struggling with the psychological fallout. Many of those who saw their kibbutz attacked have been able to find comfort in their community. But for those who were at the Nova Music Festival when Hamas militants attacked, there is no ready-made community of support. So Leon Naor decided to create one. Ms. Naor is a PhD student in the Department of Counseling and Human Development at Haifa University. She's also the founder and lead of The Healing Space. It's a volunteer-led initiative to offer support to the music festival survivors. We reached her in Pardes Chana, Israel. Leah, what do you want survivors to feel when they come to your healing space? Supported, gentle, soft, warm environment that as much as possible connects them to life and what is alive. And I want them to feel that there's no judgment. And I want them to feel that um, there's a loving, compassionate atmosphere to come to. So when they enter healing space, um, they're welcomed. What we do is we take them through the space and we show them the different options. What are the options? So there's an area of uh, body therapy, and then there are psychologists and social workers and psychiatrists on on site. So if they want to do verbal therapy or talking, and usually it happens after they've sat with friends and uh, community is a big part of what we're doing. So a lot of, Mm -hmm. of what they come is to be with others that have gone through similar events. Um, We even have something we call trance therapy. So after a few weeks, when we felt that they needed to move more, Mm -hmm. we brought earphones so they could listen to trance music again, but so that it wouldn't trigger them too much, we had them choose and listen to it on earphones. And we're with them, dancing with them and crying with them and holding them within that so they can finish the song. And these people, music was so so much a part of of what they loved in life. Were you concerned, Leah, that that there wasn't uh, a space for survivors of the music festival? Is that why you wanted to create this? There wasn't anything. There couldn't have been anything. I I opened this 24 hours after the 7th of October. So Mm -hmm. this was the first place open for the survivors of the Nova Festival. But um, we're open not only for the survivors of the music festival, but for many others that are now very much in need of a place that is informal and it's not a hotline and it's not a therapist's office, but it's a place and the place itself is very healing and it's not for deep therapy. It's, um, it's an immediate response. It's doing the first weeks or months after the trauma but people that would need uh, therapy that's more consistent, um, would we would refer them to other places or right. people. We're 9 million people in trauma, so we can't get to everybody. Mm-hmm. But we can, as a community, hold other communities. And that's what we're creating here. What kinds of things are, are some of the people you've you've been working with, what are they telling you? They're telling us that they feel that they um, maybe were, their bodies were alive, but they were dead and we saw them. They came in, it was, it was horrendous. Their eyes were hollow. They couldn't eat. They couldn't sit. They couldn't look in our eyes. 
It was like as though death was stuck to them. And slowly but surely, they kind of were able to connect back to their bodies and gained trust. And many of them are back to their full lives. And many of them now volunteer with us. So it's amazing to see within a month mm -hmm. such uh, a transformative change. And I think this is the step towards the future of mental health in the world is having spaces that are integrative and also that communities support one another. So it's not just the professional with the patient. We've had so many conversations over the last two months on the, on the program. And as much as people want to be hopeful about the future and the possibility of, of peace, many have told us that it feels very far away at this at this moment, at least. How are the people you're talking to dealing with the stress of that as well? We're not having um, conversations about world peace. Mm -hmm. We are having conversations if, if they're able to get to sleep, yeah. if they've had a few hours without nightmares, of how they want to remember their friends that were killed and massacred. Um, so that's where we're at right now. It's, it's the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. And we are a country in deep, deep, deep trauma and grief. Um, we all pray for peace, but I think first we need to be able to to breathe and to know that we can sleep safely and that we can feel secure in our homes. And I think that comes a little before. I wonder, you're, you're helping people, as you've said, and, and, and the volunteer therapists, I believe you have 200 of them working with you. But has, has it helped you hmm. over these two months as well? That's such a good question. We all, all the therapists and all the volunteers, we feel that this uh, center has saved us because helping others and doing mute, meaningful work in such dark times and feeling that we're really bringing light to the dark um, is my anchor, is my daily anchor. I don't know what I would do if I didn't have to get up and go to help save these peoples and these lives. And so I feel very privileged and very honored to do this work. And I um, think that this is what sustains us now. And um, we see it in, in every area, in every corner in Israel. People are cooking and people are driving people from place to place and people are, are building. And it's just like this whole country is up on um, how we can build up what has been so savagely destroyed in a moment. And that's giving us a lot of strength. Leah, thank you for your time. Thank you. Leah Naor is the founder and lead of The Healing Space, which offers support to survivors of the Nova Music Festival. We reached her in Pardes Chana, Israel. At Hanukkah, families fry up latkes, light the menorah, and each night, children receive a present. And sometimes, those Hanukkah gifts come in an unexpected form and keep on giving long after the holiday is over. As the Festival of Lights comes to a close, we bring you a story by Isaac Beshevis Singer. It's read by Josh Dolgan. It happened about 10 years ago in Brooklyn, New York. All day long, a heavy snow was falling. Towards evening, the sky cleared and a few stars appeared. A frost set in. It was the eighth day of Hanukkah, and my silver Hanukkah lamp stood on the windowsill with all candles burning. It was mirrored in the window pane, and I imagined another lamp outside. My wife, Esther, was frying potato pancakes. I sat with my son, David, at a table and played dreidel with him. Suddenly, David cried out, Papa, look! And he pointed to the window. 
I looked up and saw something that seemed unbelievable. Outside on the windowsill stood a yellow-green bird, watching the candles. In a moment, I understood what had happened. A parakeet had escaped from its home somewhere, had flown out into the cold street and landed on my windowsill, perhaps attracted by the light. A parakeet is native to warm climate, and it cannot stand the cold and frost for very long. I immediately took steps to save the bird from freezing. First, I carried away the Hanukkah lamp so that the bird would not burn itself when entering. Then I opened the window, and with a quick wave of my hand, shooed the parakeet inside. The whole thing took only a few seconds. In the beginning, the frightened bird flew from wall to wall. It hit itself against the ceiling and for a while hung from a crystal prism on the chandelier. David tried to calm it. Don't be afraid, little bird. We are your friends. Presently, the bird flew toward David and landed on his head, as though it had been trained and was accustomed to people. David began to dance and laugh with joy. My wife, in the kitchen, heard the noise and came out to see what had happened. When she saw the bird on David's head, she asked, Where did you get a bird all of a sudden? Mama, it just came to our window. To the window in the middle of the winter? Papa saved its life. The bird was not afraid of us. David lifted his hand to his forehead and the bird settled on his finger. Esther placed a saucer of millet and a dish of water on the table and the parakeet ate and drank. It saw the dreidel and began to push it with its beak. David exclaimed, Look, the bird plays dreidel. David soon began to talk about buying a cage for the bird and also about giving it a name. But Esther and I reminded him that the bird was not ours. We would try to find the owners who probably missed their pet and were worried about what had happened to it in the icy weather. David said, Meanwhile, let's call it Dreidel. That night, Dreidel slept on a picture frame and woke us in the morning with its singing. The bird stood on the frame, its plumage brilliant in the purple light of the rising sun, shaking as in prayer whistling, twittering, and talking all at the same time. The parakeet must have belonged to a house where Yiddish was spoken because we heard it say, Zeldala geschlafen, Zeldala, go to sleep. And these simple words uttered by the tiny creature filled us with wonder and delight. The next day I posted a notice in the elevators of the neighborhood houses. It said that we had found a Yiddish-speaking parakeet. When a few days passed and no one called, I advertised in the newspaper, for which I wrote, but a week went by and no one claimed the bird. Only then did Dreidel become ours. We bought a large cage with all the fittings and toys that a bird might want. But because Hanukkah is a festival of freedom, we resolved never to lock the cage. Dreidel was free to fly around the house whenever he pleased. The man at the pet shop had told us that the bird was a male. Nine years passed, and Dreidel remained with us. We became more attached to him from day to day. In our house, Dreidel learned scores of Yiddish, English, and Hebrew words. David taught him to sing a Hanukkah song, and there was always a wooden Dreidel in the cage for him to play with. When I wrote on my Yiddish typewriter, Dreidel would cling to the index figure of either my right or left hand, jumping acrobatically with every letter I wrote. Esther often joked that Dreidel was helping me write and that he was entitled to half my earnings. Our son, David, grew up and entered college. One winter night, he went to a Hanukkah party. He told us that he would be home late, and Esther and I went to bed early. We'd just fallen asleep when the telephone rang. It was David. As a rule, he is a quiet and composed young man. This time he spoke so excitedly that we could barely understand what he was saying. It seemed that David had told the story of our parakeet to his fellow students at the party, and a girl named Zelda Rosen had exclaimed, I am Zeldala. We lost our parakeet nine years ago. Zelda and her parents lived not far from us, but they had never seen the notice in the newspaper or the ones posted in elevators. Zelda was now a student and a friend of David's. She had never visited us before, although our son often spoke about her to his mother. We slept little that night. The next day, Zelda and her parents came to see their long-lost pet. Zelda was a beautiful and gifted girl. David often took her to the theater and to museums. 
Not only did the Rosens recognize their bird, but the bird seemed to recognize his former owners. The Rosens used to call him Tsip-Tsip, and when the parakeet heard them say Tsip-Tsip, he became flustered and started to fly from one member of the family to the other, screeching and flapping his wings. Both Zelda and her mother cried when they saw their beloved bird alive. The father stared silently, and then he said, We have never forgotten our Tsip-Tsip. I was ready to return the parakeet to his original owners, but Esther and David argued that they could never part with Dreidel. It was also not necessary because that day, David and Zelda decided to get married after their graduation from college. So, Dreidel is still with us, always eager to learn new words and new games. When David and Zelda marry, they will take Dreidel to their new home. Zelda has often said, Dreidel was our matchmaker. On Hanukkah, he always gets a gift. A mirror, a ladder, a bathtub, a swing, or a jingle bell. He has even developed a taste for potato pancakes, as befits a parakeet named Dreidel. Parakeet named Dreidel, read by Josh Dolgan, also known as the Canadian musician and performer So-Called, who reinterpreted our As It Happens theme music in 2013. That story is by Isaac Besheva Singer. listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.